Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. Happy Science Week, one and all. It kicked off yesterday with a fantastic launch at uh, the Glassworks, because the theme for this year's National Science Week is glass, Uh, and uh, I hope you've... um, be getting out and about to some amazing science events that are happening out there. If you haven't found one close to you, check out scienceweek.net.au for all the events that are happening out there. I know across here in Canberra we have some uh, amazing bits and pieces happening at all the shopping centres for both the weekends of National Science Week, so do go out and check it out. It's very exciting indeed. My name is Broderick and it's a pleasure to be here with you this Sunday for Fuzzy Logic. Thanks very much to Bruce for Irish voice in the show beforehand. But now we're moving into the hour of science here on 2XXFM. And this week I'm uh, really excited to be talking geoscience in this, this special Science Week episode and all about how geoscience is saving the world. Often the news is a bit bleak in in the science world, isn't it? We're talking about melting ice sheets, endless floods, extreme storms, COVID variant after COVID variant. It's doom and gloom. But Geoscience Australia has decided that for National Science Week, they want to sit back and reflect on how science is fighting back. It's putting us forward for a better world. And today... We're going to be going from up in space to deep beneath the Earth's surface as a scientist from Geoscience Australia join me in the studio and share how they're working across Canberra to make our planet more sustainable, which is super exciting indeed. And to kick off today's show, we are going to be talking hydrogen. And I've got a couple of hydrogen and low-carbon gurus joining me in the studio today, Dr. Andrew Feitz and Dr. Alex Kalinowski. Good morning to both of you. Good, Good morning. morning. <laughs> Thanks very much. That was in unison. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you are in sync. It's fantastic to have you joining me in the studio today um, and, and talking about this uh, fantastic green fuel of hydrogen. Uh, and we talk about it a lot, but so let's start with the beginning. What is hydrogen as a fuel? Well, hydrogen is great because you can use hydrogen you use it, burn it, and it just produces um, water. It doesn't produce CO2. So this is fantastic for our climate thing. But it's been around for ages, and people have been talking for ages about using hydrogen. Do you know the um, uh, science fiction writer Jules Verne? Yes, 20,000 leagues 20, under the sea. 20,000 leagues yeah. under the sea, journey to the centre of the earth, you know, uh, well, around the world in 80 days. Yeah. Well, this guy predicted, well, predicted but in one of his books in the 18 no 1860s said one day into the future humanity will be using hydrogen rather than fossil fuels for the generation of energy that was back in the 1860s that's like 150 plus years ago predicting hydrogen so that that means i I presume back then they were burning hydrogen and and turning it into water at, at that point in time well no that was just the the discovery of electricity around that time. So this is, you know, they're just moving into the second industrial revolution. They, you know, the first was all about getting coal out of the ground and then it was starting to connect it all together. But then, yeah, this guy was seeing that, you know, the problem was that these coal-fired power stations who had heaps of emissions and stuff with them and he, you know, there was, it was an interesting period around science and discovery. And he just saw this thing about hydrogen, hydrogen one day, could be what we could be using and here we are 160 years later potentially on the cusp of actually using hydrogen how exciting how exciting indeed because yeah it is a fantastic green fuel you're going from hydrogen burning it with some oxygen turning it into water yeah um which which seems like a a, a an almost perfect process really doesn't it it does, except the only problem is it takes a lot of energy to make the hydrogen. Uh, and this is where I guess we've been working is like, you know, where are the best places to, where you could build hydrogen? What are the different ways you could do to make it? Yeah, okay. So how are we currently making our hydrogen? Yeah, so um, you probably know that hydrogen as a free gas in its own sort of pure form doesn't exist on Earth in many places. We can't find it. It's all over the universe, but it's not on Earth, unfortunately. So we have to make it somehow. And there's a couple of different ways we can make it. Um, One way is to basically run some electricity through water and you separate your water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen. And if you use a renewable form of uh, electricity to do that, like solar or wind power, then we get what's called green hydrogen. You've probably heard about the colours of hydrogen, green (laughs) hydrogen, right? So there's no emissions associated with that hydrogen. It's fantastic. 
Um, but the main way that we make hydrogen these days at the moment is from fossil fuels like natural gas or coal. Um, and you use heat and chemical reactions and water to make that hydrogen. And the problem, I suppose, with that is that you actually end up with carbon dioxide emissions that yeah. you have to do something with in order to make that hydrogen actually kind of clean. So if you can capture those carbon dioxide emissions and put them underground, store them permanently away from the atmosphere, then you end up with what's called blue hydrogen. So it's a really low emissions, quite a clean form of hydrogen as well. Um, if you don't capture that, you end up with grey or brown or black hydrogen. You can see the colour spectrum just <laughs> yeah, keeps growing. And right, so these yeah. kind of dirty colours <laughs> represent the more intensive, sort of carbon intensive forms of energy yeah. of, of hydrogen. And the final way really is to find natural deposits of hydrogen. Um, so we're looking, this is a really new research area that's really exciting. This is what we call white or gold hydrogen. Right. Okay. And how, uh, how many deposits of hydrogen have we found so far around Australia, around the world? There's one. <laughs> so there's one uh, field in Mar. Well, that what I should say is there's one place in the world in Mali where they found had a gas field, and that gas coming out of that field, like natural gas, except it's not natural gas. It's like ninety eight percent hydrogen. Right. It's crazy. So this has got people talking. It's like, well, where is this stuff? You know, where can we find this stuff? Can we use this stuff into the future as a way that we can have a a low emissions type of natural fuel that we could access. And so there's a lot of research that's happening at the moment to try and work out, you know, where is this? At Geoscience Australia, we went back through all our, you know, decades of gas samples, which we'd collected from, you know, gas samples because, you know, companies, we get samples sent to us from companies when they drill a new well and we analyse it to see what composition is in it. But we analysed this for decades going back and, yeah, we found places around Australia where there's quite high hydrogen. Okay, so we yeah. just hadn't really e explored that before previously. No, it just... Had a, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and do you know uh, what uh, causes a high hydrogen deposit? In yeah. Well, yeah, this is the thing. It's like, it's way more complicated than how you produce natural gas. So <laughs> natural gas is really easy. It's like you have, you know, old organic matter from the ages of the dinosaurs that have been heated up and it produces natural gas. And then that migrates through the rock strata and blah, blah, blah. Um, with hydrogen, there's way more different ways that you could produce hydrogen. One way is that uh, from uh, radioactive decay in rocks like granites and stuff. So there's the minerals in that, you know, like potassium and uh, thorium and these sort of things. As they naturally decay, they zap the water that's near them and that can produce hydrogen. But there's many, many other different ways too. Yeah, oh, very interesting indeed. So, yeah. yeah, still a lot of uncertainty around that process, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, you were talking about, I guess, your work in, in trying to find the, the best places to, to place these hydrogen uh, pr producing uh, factories, uh, yeah. plants, power plants, that sort of thing. Where, where are we looking at the moment in Australia? Is it close to cities or are we looking out, out in the middle of nowhere um, where, we, where we have access to lots of land? Uh, it really depends on the quality of your uh, renewable energy resource, how good the solar is, how good your wind is. Ideally, if you're going to produce green hydrogen, you want to have a place that has good solar during the day and then wind at night. So you get, you're using your equipment for more parts of the day. Um, so, you know, places like the Pilbara, for example, are really good um, around South Australia, there's but all around Queensland, there's lots and lots of places. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, near a city, but seems to be that the link with infrastructure like, you know, roads and that sort of thing is, is really important. Yeah. yeah. The other thing to remember, I suppose, is that to make hydrogen, you need water. Mm. Um, and so um, we're very lucky. I suppose Australia is surrounded by oceans. Um, and if you desalinate that water, we have an almost endless supply of um, of water that we can use to make hydrogen. So that factors into the equation. It's not, not just where you get the renewable electricity um, you know, generation potential, but also where you can get your water. And if you want to export that hydrogen, you want to be near near ports, so you don't have to, you know, transport it across all of Australia before you can get it overseas. Yeah. Okay. And how much water are we talking here when we're when we're turning it into hydrogen? Yeah. Is it, it's thousands of liters? No, it's not thousands of liters. So one, the theoretical minimum is nine kilograms or nine liters of water for one kilogram of hydrogen. Okay. But in practice, you're talking about 20. 
So yeah. 20 liters of water per. So you can imagine that, you know, if you're going to establish a massive hydrogen plant, you don't want to be sucking all the water out of your rivers and dams and that sort of thing. Um, so in the National Hydrogen Strategy that was released a few years ago, they said that, you know, for especially for exports, really you should be using ocean desal, which makes a lot of sense, or potentially water recycling. So in cities like Sydney, for example, you know, there's all this wastewater that goes through that city and, you know, it's like hundreds of millions of litres a day that is going through there. Um, you could potentially process that water and use that water for hydrogen. Yeah. And yeah. ultimately, in the end, I, I suppose this is circular in that when we use the hydrogen to create energy, it's being turned back into water. Um, is there any need to capture that water when we do um, you know, to use the hydrogen for energy or, or are we just letting that drift off and in the end it'll come back to, to the water systems? Yeah, well, totally. actually, funny you say that. I've never really thought about that. Much, but my 13-year-old son just last week was saying, I was talking to him about hydrogen. He goes, yeah, but what about the water? Do you capture the water? And then can you have this constant recycling thing? I said, actually, it's not such a bad plan. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, look, I think, uh, yeah, if, for, you know, if you're using hydrogen in a truck or in a car, then it obviously doesn't make sense to do that. Yeah. But, you know, um, in, the, in the overall scheme of things, it does go back into the atmosphere, turns into clouds, and then comes back down as rain. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There we go. So, yeah, so they're, 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 it's going to be captured by the, the, the world system then. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, actually, while we're talking about capture, I suppose mm. maybe we should explore a little bit around the carbon capture because you, you're talking mm. about that that's a lot of the, the hydrogen that is being created at the moment is yeah. is that in the carbon capture system. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of techniques are we using to, to capture that carbon as we create the hydrogen? Yeah, well, um, at the moment, there's, there's not very much um, carbon capture associated with hydrogen production. It's something that will grow as the yep. whole industry grows. But basically, carbon capture and storage, it's all about, it's, it's quite straightforward. It's about capturing CO2 emissions from, usually from a stationary sort of emission source, like an industrial plant or even a power station. Um, you can even capture the CO2 directly from the air and concentrate it. And then you, you, you compress it, you concentrate it, and you inject it deep underground into rocks that can store lots of fluids like water or gas or CO2 um, and that's permanently locked up and so that's what carbon capture and storage is all about and this is when we talk about blue hydrogen and creating hydrogen from from fossil fuels this is how we can make that clean yeah. um, and low emissions and is carbon capture a, a long-term solution for this or is, or is this an interim until we can get really green hydrogen happening yeah, well, I think um, the goal really is to get that green hydrogen. And as we see the price of renewable energy um, reducing and the deployment of renewable energy growing across the world, um, we'll see more and more of that green hydrogen produced. But in order to get the scale of hydrogen production that we're talking about, we sort of need to throw everything at it at the moment. And um, at the moment, most of our hydrogen is produced from uh, fossil fuels. And so carbon capture technology can help us transition over the next, you know, few decades um, to that sort of really green um, uh, hydrogen production, yeah. Yeah, it's worth saying, just commenting there, that, you know, hydrogen is used a lot in the world at the moment, but it's used in industrial processes. So it's used to produce um, fertilisers, it's used to clean up oil, it's used for lots of different things like that. There's, I think, about 70 or 90, I don't know, it's a million tonnes a year of hydrogen is currently used around the world. Um, and so f certainly for a fertilizer plant, it really makes a lot of sense to actually just capture that CO2 because it's already part of the process. Mm. The burn, you know, they're converting the hydrogen, uh, the, sorry, uh, the natural gas into hydrogen. They produce a very pure stream of CO2. At the moment, that stream of CO2 is, is um, vented, but that could be captured and then um, mm. yeah, used for carbon capture and storage. So, yep. yeah, I mean... Uh, there's some um, one one of the tricky things about carbon capture and storage is that you want that those pure streams are the ones which are really have low cost associated mm. with them. Yeah, right. So the the purer the carbon dioxide is that's coming out, rather than other carbon mm. products, the the better you can use that for carbon capture. Yeah, you want a sort of a pure stream and and quite a lot of that CO two coming out at once, so you so you don't have to. Um, 
compress it and condense it and collect it quite as much. And separate it. And separate it from other gases and other things that you might have. Yeah. Yeah. So is this carbon capture? Because I'm no expert, but I've heard a lot about carbon Mm. capture in the the media and that sort of thing. And and we've often talked about around fossil fuel usage Mm -hmm. in general. Mm. Is the, the carbon capture that we're talking about for hydrogen production different to the, the carbon capture that we're talking about in the production of other fuels? No, it's it's all the same, right? Yeah. So carbon capture and storage, um, it's really uh, agnostic around where that CO2 comes from, right? The technology is all about getting some CO2 and putting it underground and permanently storing it. And, and we know it works because we have natural gas fields, we have oil fields, we have actually natural accumulations of CO2 that have been underground for millions of years. Um, so we can definitely do it when it's been, it's a technology that's been used for you know more than 50 years around the world. Um, but uh, in terms of where that CO2 comes from, it's, it doesn't actually matter that much. So we can capture it from industrial sources, so from steel making, for example, or from fertiliser production, as Andrew mentioned. Um, we can capture it directly from the air. So this is something that people are really interested in because the idea of actually removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and injecting it underground is really attractive yeah. um, in terms of uh, mitigating our carbon emissions and, and reducing our overall greenhouse gas in mm-hmm. the atmosphere. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much where we're looking at if we have to go down the net negative pathway, right, into the future. Like by 2050, the plan is that we'll be at net, net zero, but that means that we're removing CO2 out mm. of the atmosphere. And, you know, reforestation can do so much, but there's mm. probably, you know, the IPCC and IEA and all these other different organisations, you know, international organisations, as basically saying that, you know, we can only get there with carbon capture and storage. Yeah, okay, so we're yeah. really reversing yeah. every everything that we've done by taking it out and putting it back. Yeah. yeah. Is, so, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, all that CO2 came out of the ground, yeah. right? Yeah. And so basically we're taking it back out of the air and putting it back under the ground. Yeah, and so I guess just to... to tie it all up is is there any potential negative effect from putting this co2 back underground no not really i mean it's it's like i said it's a really well-known technology and these projects you know they're, they're really well engineered and really well thought out so we know we do a lot of studies to make sure that the rocks that we're putting this co2 back into um are the right kinds of rocks they're basically like sandstones so you know if you imagine a sandstone on the beach or, or your sandstone paver in your backyard that's the sort of rock that we're putting it into that's there's little holes in between all these little grains that can be filled with fluids, water and gas and oil and all sorts of things, and hydrogen. As we're <laughs> finding. Um, and so that's the sort of rock that we're putting it back into, and we know that works. So we've got, there's something like 30 um, CCS projects around the world at the moment. Um, there hasn't been you know, ill effects from those projects. Um, as all projects have some sort of teething issues, of course, any mm. large, I mean, you know, you build a building, there'll be some teething issues, you build a road, um, and the same thing with um, carbon capture and storage. But um, as we do more and more of these types of projects, we'll find that, you know, those teething issues become much easier to solve, and there's an economy of scale, and we get these systems really working really smoothly. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm. Well, we're talking about storing carbon underground and that side of things, but let's go back mm. to the hydrogen now because mm. if we're producing lots of hydrogen, I, I presume the idea isn't that we just burn it again straight away to create the electricity. We actually yeah. have to keep this hydrogen um, at various points. How, how are we storing this, this fuel? Yeah, right. So hydrogen, you know, as I was saying before, hydrogen is produced commercially and there are some commercial high underground storage resources Um in the UK and uh, USA. So these are basically salt. So can you imagine, like, you know, salt that is, I don't know, half a kilometre or one kilometre thick of pure salt underground. Yeah. And so you, what you can do is you can then create a cavern in that and you can store the hydrogen. And that's how hydrogen is stored currently around the world at the moment in, like, really large volumes of hydrogen. So hold on, are you talking? Are you talking about because we were just talking about pushing the the gas into rocks and the pores yeah. in the rocks? Are we talking about pushing into the pores in the salt, or literally in caverns like open spaces underground? Yeah, so you actually create a cavern. So yeah. essentially, you drill a well down into your thick, you know, half a kilometer kilometer thick thing of salt, and you circulate water, and you dissolve it out, and you dissolve a bit out, and it comes back to the surface. You extract the salt separate the water, put it back in, and it takes forever. Like, it takes, oh, well, not forever, but, you know, <laughs> we're talking a number of years to create a cavern, and these caverns are sort of, I don't know, 60 metres in diameter by roughly, you know, 200 metres in length. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, this sort of cavern, and basically you can store the, hy- stick the hydrogen in there, and you can pull it in and out, and it's like a 
giant fuel tank, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we're storing it under pressure in that. Yeah, that you system. have to store it under pressure. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Is, is that the main storage mechanism that we're looking at at the moment, or are there other new technologies? Uh, well, it's a scale issue, right? Yeah. So, um, you people, you can store hydrogen um, in tanks, but you know. You can't store a lot of hydrogen in tanks, and it's a lot of infrastructure and stuff around that. So, and it's a lot more expensive than storing in a ca- in a salt cavern. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can convert it into a liquid, and you could store it as liquid ammonia or liquid hydrogen. That's another way. Um, but it's keeping in mind the relative, you know, the amount of energy that these things store. So, uh, um, do you remember the? Um, in South Australia, after they had that disaster and they wanted to, uh, the electricity disaster, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and the interconnector the, broke and they the, went, right, we're going to put in a massive battery, the world's biggest battery. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that's the Hornsdale big battery. Yeah. When that was constructed back in 2019, I think it was, it was the world's biggest battery. It stores the equivalent of three tons of hydrogen. In a cavern, you can store a thousand times that more so you the yeah. equivalent amount of storage you know you would need a thousand of those big batteries around the place to store the same amount of energy as one in a cabin yeah yeah and so i guess when we're talking about the um uh the power there of hydrogen is is this being seen as as a potential alternative into the the electricity system and that sort of thing at the moment for for batteries for that quick power that we need it's the nice thing about hydrogen is you can store quite a lot of energy. So you can, batteries are great if there's, you know, you need a bit of power for like 10 minutes or an hour, but then they're depleted, yeah. right? And so the good thing about hydrogen, you get a massive store of energy and you could potentially use that to firm the electricity supply. So in South Australia, they, South Australia going crazy with, you know, putting in world's first, world's first biggest battery. Now they're building the world's first um, hydrogen powered gas turbine that will firm the electricity network so they've put out calls of interest around that at the moment and that would be amazing so rather than using natural gas yeah to you know when there's periods of low renewable energy output because it's really really cloudy or it's not windy you'll actually be able to do that using hydrogen yeah it's worth remembering too that um you know in order to make a battery you actually need a lot of materials so you need a lot of you know, minerals and things that you need to dig up and, and make into batteries, right? So they're really useful in some situations. But if you make hydrogen, it's almost like you're bottling sunshine. You know, you can... <laughs> and, and, I mean, <laughs> that sounds a bit silly, but it means that you can... that Hydrogen as a, as a fuel or as an energy source is incredibly flexible, right? So as Andrew mentioned before, you can use it for transport, you can use it for energy generation in a power plant, you can use it for all sorts of things and, and it's, you can move it around and use it where you need to and then mm-hmm. the emissions from that is just water. So um, batteries, you know, if you were going to put the equivalent amount of batteries in a truck, you'd end up with a really, really heavy truck that <laughs> can't drive as far. Whereas if you stick a whole load of um, hydrogen, it's very light um, and you can drive forever. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah so. indeed. Well, and let's explore some of those applications because yeah. I, I, I know um, our former chief scientist, Dr. Alan Finkel, uh, was a big um, proponent of hydrogen fuel and he, he would often go around uh, having hydrogen barbecues oh, with yeah. people <laughs> as, as media stunts and, and cooking <laughs> as sausages. Uh, are we going to be seeing hydrogen replacing our um, LPG in the, the cylinders there or are we looking at bigger applications? I think the major application, well, there's a couple, but one of the major ones is that we can, with our huge, you know, renewable energy resources and supply of water, we have massive coastline, is that we can produce hydrogen that we can send to our trading partners who are currently sending oil, oh, sorry, um, coal and natural gas. So countries like Korea and, J- and Japan, they, their economies are basically almost completely dependent on the importation of fossil fuels. So for them, decarbonisation of their economies is really hard. They can't just, you know, switch over to renewal, you know, electrification because they don't have huge renewable energy resources like we do in Australia. So by us converting our resources into a fuel that then we can transport by ship to there that they can then use and replace their natural gas or their coal with just makes is a really sensible way and a huge export opportunity for Australia as we transition away from exporting natural gas mm. to maybe exporting hydrogen into the future. 
Yeah, which seems like a quite a, a useful solution because that's been mm. often the arguments against mm. transitioning from fossil fuels is um, that it is a key part of our economy as we mm. export it to other countries there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this seems to be plugging that gap quite nicely, yeah. potentially. Well, the thing is, it's a lot more expensive. That's the problem at the moment, right? So uh, in certain circumstances, it's actually not. So at a remote location where you're currently using diesel, you could switch to hydrogen and the cost would be about equivalent mm. at the moment, right? So it's, that's, that, that's really positive. But there's things become, you know, as the scale increases, um, it's, it is more expensive. It's more expensive to produce green hydrogen than with, you know, um, fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage at the moment. But that's pro- projected to uh, decrease substantially. The costs are projected to decrease substantially into the future. So in the future, in a couple of decades, it's predicted that, you know, if the cost of uh, solar decreases to what people are aiming for, which is incredibly cheap, then, yeah, hydrogen produced from solar will be really cheap. We've seen that with other technologies too, of course. You know, um, 20 years ago, solar was quite expensive. Mm. And just the, you know, advances in technology and and efficiency of those panels and also just economies of scale and, you know, production of these things has meant that they're cheaper. And now you drive around Canberra and you see solar panels everywhere, you know, Um, so many rooftop solar and and, um, businesses are using solar and that sort of thing. Same thing with this. I mean, hydrogen is really, it's kind of on the cusp. It's currently is kind of a bit of a niche um, use for hydrogen. But as we develop this industry, which could be, you know, enormous, like rivaling our um, fossil fuel industry, then it's all of these things will come into play. It'll start becoming much cheaper. Yeah. So what's going to be needed to push it over the edge if we're sitting on the cusp now, you know, solar energy, we've had a lot of initiatives from government to encourage people to, to, to bring solar into their homes. Um, and that, of course, has been coupled with technology improvements, as you said. What, what's needed for, for hydrogen to help push it over the edge, do you think? I think it's just starting to build stuff, yeah. really. It's, it's funny. We went to a uh, hydrogen um, conference not so long ago, and one of the things there is that people keep saying, oh, well, you know, it'll be cheaper into the future. And the guy said, well, it's not time that makes it cheaper. It's actually the deployment mm. and you know, getting those costs down with more and more experience, that that's what really drives down the cost. So, you know, if we really start building electrolyzers that are getting bigger and cheaper, the electrolyzers are the pieces of equipment that zap the water to produce hydrogen. Um, yeah, that, that's what's going to drive the, the cost down. Economies of scale, you know, just, just like solar cells, right? They're pretty much all the same and you can produce billions of them. Um, same sort of thing, I guess, with, with hydrogen. If you can get your electrolyzers so that you're just mass producing these things, that'll reduce, reduce the cost a lot. Yeah, okay. And do yeah. we have all those ingredients that we need here in Australia to, to start getting the electrolyzers in place and, and all those sorts of things? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a real desire to bring a lot of that manufacturing back to Australia so that Australia could be a real world leader in that, is that we have all the mines and the minerals and the metals and the, especially the critical mineral mineral resources in Australia that we could use to produce those um Electrolyzers. Some of those um, things use platinum and nickel and all sorts of fancy sort of metals that we currently have resources in Australia. So we could actually have be a real world leader in the production of those um, systems. Yeah. So what sort of minerals are we looking at there to to be pulling out for that? Uh, oh, look, um, lots of things. So critical minerals, I guess you know they're kind of critical in a couple of ways. That that that, that um, definition is because they're really important or because they're hard to find, or those resources are only located in a few places, right? Um, and so Australia is actually quite blessed. You know, we know in natural resources, so we've been talking about sunshine and water and natural gas, and minerals is another one of those things that we have. So um, there's a lot of work going on right now to find more and more of the these large deposits of, of these elements that we're going to need, not just for electrolyzers, but also for producing the solar panels, producing, you know, these giant wind turbines that we really, really need these materials for. So, you know, that, that may lead to increases in mining, of course, but we can do these things sustainably now. We know a lot more about how to do these things sustainably. But, in order, you know, I guess that kind of highlights that all of this is part of a system. Mm. None, none of this is done in isolation. Everything relies on something else, and you can't have renewable energy without mining and getting these 
you know, elements out of the ground and you can't produce hydrogen without that renewable energy and all, you know, all that sort of thing. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's a really important message, actually, because mining is often seen as the devil uh, mm. when, we, when you start going into renewable energy, green mm-hmm. economy and all that sort of thing. Um, but I think that's, that's a really interesting point you make there about the importance of the, the, the need we still have to dig, dig things up from the ground, but mm-hmm. how we can do that sustainably and in an in a environmentally friendly way. That's right. And, and, you know, people are now looking at things like mine waste, you know, and trying to... So in the past, you might have gone looking for a particular um, element or metal or something. Like gold? Yeah, like gold or something. And there's mm. a lot of waste, you know, from, from digging that up that people have just kind of gone, oh, we don't need anything else in there. And now we're finding that actually in that mine waste, there's a lot of these critical elements that we could go back and reprocess and, and sort of suckle that stuff out. Mm. So we're, it's actually a really efficient way of extracting as much of the resources we can with the least amount of impact. Um, and so there's a lot of work going on in, you know, in, in this area to, to try and maximise our resources with the minimum sort of impact and in the most sustainable way, yeah. And is that part of the role of Geoscience Australia Definitely. to help make this whole system better? Yeah, definitely. We have a huge effort right now in, in this critical mineral space, in finding mineral deposits, in obviously in the low carbon space. Also, you know, in, in natural gas, you know, that sort of doesn't get looked at, get looked at um, favourably. But, but natural gas, if you look at it as a transitional fuel from, from coal to natural gas, you know, you're actually reducing your CO2 emissions by about half if you use natural gas instead of coal for your electricity. So um, that's part of our role in terms of decarbonising our region not just Australia, but looking at the Asia-Pacific region more broadly, which is one of the most carbon-intensive regions in the world. So, you know, we have a role. All of these resources actually play a role in sort of pushing us towards these sort of net-zero carbon goals in 2050. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah, we're talking about net-zero goals. We've seen across the ACT recently they've started to talk about phasing out natural gas Mm -hmm. and and pushing that away, which, uh, you know, has people concerned. Mm -hmm. Um, People are used to gas and they're used to, Mm -hmm. to interacting with it in a, in a set way. Mm-hmm. Is, is hydrogen a potential uh, replacement for, for natural gas into the future in terms of plumbing it into our homes, cooking and heating and, and that sort of work? Well, yeah, this is uh, quite... I, I was really surprised when I saw that, actually, because there was quite a um, push to put hydrogen into the current natural gas system um, and ultimately replace the distribution system with hydrogen. So hydrogen can be used for, um, for heating and um, a 10% mix of hydrogen. You don't need to change any of your appliances. They'll run just fine using a mix of natural gas and hydrogen. If so, you get- sorry, just 10% mix there. So you're talking about keeping the natural gas but just starting to push in more hydrogen. Is that kind of similar to how we put like 10% ethanol into our fuels to, to clean them up a little? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's, you know, part of the problem at the moment is there isn't a demand for hydrogen. So one way you could increase that demand and, you know, get people to invest in building hydrogen production facilities is to start supplying hydrogen into the domestic gas market. It's a really easy way uh, that was identified in the National Hydrogen Strategy. Um, If you wanted to go to 100% hydrogen, and I do believe that all the pipe work in Canberra would be suitable for 100% hydrogen, but you would have to change the appliances. And that sounds like an absolute disaster, but actually we were back here in the 1970s and 1960s because our gas in those days actually came was town gas. And town gas is actually derived from the combustion of coal and it contained hydrogen. It contained up to about 40, 50% hydrogen. And when we switched over to this new natural gas, (laughs) we had to change all our appliances to make it so it was compatible with natural gas. And that took a period of about 10 years to change them all over. So it's kind of like back to the future in a way. You could could potentially go back to... um, Hydrogen, but yeah, look, uh, it you know it depends on you know obviously the state jurisdiction and what pathway they want to take. But yeah, interesting. It's it's an option for us there. Yeah, and I guess the only thing that I'd wonder is is in terms of safety of of hydrogen. Is is there any difference in safety between natural gas and hydrogen gas? I think one of the things is that hydrogen has been used really extensively, but in an industrial setting. So in an industrial setting, you know, the processes are really, you know, it's managed very well. There's no safety issues, but it, in, in a, it is in industry, right? And so there's not that experience in the domestic 
field of, of dealing with hydrogen. Uh, we had the pleasure to go out to the ACT's um, hydrogen refueling station out at Fishwick. Mm-hmm. It was like the first one built in Australia, actually, public um, uh, refueling station. And it's really interesting because when you go to fill up your car, um, apart from the price being what, um, well. <laughs> 001 <laughs> <Yes>. cent, <laughs> it was like basically it was, it's on the kind of uh, um, on the on the Bowser that you put into your hydrogen car, which by the way you fill up as in kilograms rather than yes. liters, which is kind of really <laughs> out. It's like yeah. it's like five or six kilograms to fill up a car rather yeah. than you know yeah, eighty liters. Anyway, it was really strange. <laughs> but the, one of the things about that was that. Um, because of one of the safety issues is you actually touch a pad on it um, to just deactivate the sort of static electricity. And it's, you know, it's just part of the process, right? It doesn't work until you press that pad. But, you know, there's things like that which behaviour will have to change and there will have to be systems that manage that safety, but it can certainly be done. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, you know, there's a, there's a fleet of about, what, 20 cars, hydrogen cars that drive around yeah. Canberra. So um, they're all marked. So, you know, if you're driving around Canberra, have a look for hydrogen cars. Um, yeah, you get like, what, about 100 kilometres to a kilo of hydrogen or something like that out of these cars. So mm. uh, yeah. it's really cool to see. And, uh, you know, yeah, at, the, at that electrolyzer site, um, they actually make hydrogen on site in that, in that um, refueling station. Oh, and fantastic. so, yeah, and so they've, you know, they were talking to us about how they've had, you know, special training with dealing with any safety issues and things like that. But um, hydrogen is actually one of those things that's, it can be managed really, really safely. Um, And the way it burns and that sort of thing is actually kind of um, almost a safer way in some ways than than other combustible Mm. (laughs) um, energy sort of that we use. I should clarify that hydrogen isn't free. <laughs> so at that, re- at, that, at that refueling station, the price on the Bowser is basically free, but in fact, it's like a um, it's a monthly sort of subscription model, right? Yes. Rather than a per price model at this stage. Anyway. Yeah. But into the future, it will be. You know, because there's only two refueling stations in the country at the moment, I think. So it's just slightly problematic. Mm. Um, but as they roll out more and are more publicly accessible, then it'll be probably it'll move away from a sort of monthly type fee to use that rather than to a price like we have yeah. today yeah. with petrol. Awesome. So we've talked a lot about the the way hydrogen could be going into the future, whether it's into our cars or our systems or just changing the way we. we create our power what excites you most about the the future steps of hydrogen what what key part of it all are you most excited to see happen in the the near to to not too distant future i'm really excited about well the export you know that we can really play a massive role in decarbonizing other countries so that's that's really exciting but also starting to make things like green steel i'm not sure if you've heard of green steel no that's a new one for me okay so this is part of and this is the beauty of hydrogen is you can use it to do the deep decarbonization of the economy so really tricky sectors so at the moment when we produce steel basically we use coking coal and that has lots of co2 emissions with it what you can do is people, and there's a there's a small plant in, I think it's um, Sweden, that's produced green steel. So that's actually using hydrogen rather than the coal to produce, a hi- to produce the steel. So you're getting rid of all that fossil fuel associated with steel. And steel is a huge, you know, I think it takes up, it's over 20, it's around 25% of all industrial CO2 emissions comes from steel. You know, so if you can remove that by replacing that with hydrogen, that would be fantastic. And also other minerals. There's a place up in, where is it? I think it's Gladstone that's starting to look at doing that for, might be zinc or for nickel or something like that, starting to produce these green metals rather than relying on fossil fuels for their production. Yeah, that's a very exciting application there, getting greener in, in producing all these things that are so carbon intensive at the moment. How about yeah. yourself, Alex? Oh, I just think um, I've been sort of working in this low-carbon area for a, for a while now and it's been, um, you know, ups and downs in terms of how we're dealing with it. But um, it's really exciting to see hydrogen develop. Um, you know, it's, it's really it's getting going now. We can see that um, hydrogen and carbon capture and storage and renewables are all, you know, increasingly being deployed and um, there's kind of... We've gone from the, oh, should we do something about this greenhouse gas problem to, oh, you know what, there's, there's these opportunities with these new technologies and new energy sources that we can, um, uh, you know, uh, employ. And and it's as part of a suite of technologies too, right? So hydrogen is not going to be the only thing that we need mm-hmm. to do. 
to mitigate our greenhouse gas emissions. It's going to be part of it. Carbon capture and storage is part of it. Renewables is part of it. Energy efficiency is part of it. You know, um, land use changes is part of it. All of these things have to be done, and they're all going to be done in different ways in different places. So, you know, we talked about Canberra. Perhaps we go to full electrification, but other places might use nuclear energy. So other places might use hydrogen. Other places, you know, other places might be able just to renew, you know, use renewable energy to, to drive themselves. So it's actually really exciting to see this diversification of technologies that we're using um, across the world and, and that it's actually happening. You know, it's starting mm-hmm. to happen. I just find that really exciting after, you know, after 20 years <laughs> in, in this space, <laughs> things are happening. <laughs> yeah, that is exciting. Yeah, the, yeah. the many green options, you know, we're mm. getting a full green smorgasbord now. <laughs> exactly. Well, look, it is an exciting future ahead and it's very clear that geoscience is helping to save the world with hydrogen here. <laughs> so thanks, uh, thanks to you both, Dr. Alex and Dr. Andrew, for coming in this morning and uh, sharing your expertise on hydrogen. Thanks for having us. It's yeah. been fun. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Andrew Feitz and Dr. Alex Kalinowski from Geoscience Australia and they're part of a team of hydrogen and low-carbon gurus. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM. The time is now 11.44, and we do have one more uh, scientist to talk to today. But before we do, here's a little piece of music. This is uh, the 2XX track of the week, Kim Yang and performing Brave. I won't come back And that's Kim Yang there with Brave. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM, community people-powered radio right here in Canberra. And you're probably listening on 98.3 on the FM dial or streaming online at 2xxfm.org.au. Today is uh, the second day of National Science Week and to celebrate today we've got uh, some wonderful scientists from Geoscience Australia talking about how geoscience is saving the world. Before the break we were diving into the world of hydrogen and its many different colours and how it's going to power our future. Uh, and But now we're moving from the ground and, and, and on the earth over into the uh, space. And uh, on the line, I have Dr. David Hudson, Director of Satellite Programs at Geoscience Australia. Good morning, David. G'day, Broad. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's fantastic to have you here. And uh, look, today we are all about how satellites are, well, how geoscience is saving the planet. And so I guess you're, you're all about satellites. So how are satellites helping us save the planet? Yeah, so we use satellites for all kinds of different applications. And I think many people know that satellite data gets used in things like the weather forecast. But when it comes to things like natural disasters, we actually use satellites to know when disasters are coming through looking at the weather or looking at vegetation to understand how dry fuel is to predict when fires are. We use satellites to try and manage disasters when they're occurring. So where are the floodwaters right now? Where's the fire front right now? Where's it about to move to? But even in challenges like climate change, Satellites give us a unique global perspective where we can capture consistent information through time over the entire landmass of the world. And we've been doing that for several decades. So it allows us to understand how is our world changing and, and what's, what's climate change actually looking like on the ground. And so fundamentally, the the National Carbon Accounting System comes back to an international agreement back in 1992 called the Kyoto Protocol. That's actually underpinned by what information was available then, which were satellites. So there's heaps of different applications there, which is just amazing to think of the the different uses of of the satellites. Uh, What role does Geoscience Australia play in this this satellite uh, tracking of our world? Yeah, so in in space, we generally have four jobs. We're either kind of looking or going out, which is the astronomy and the exploration stuff. We're sending messages, which is the telecommunications stuff. And then we've got position, navigation and timing and Earth observation. Geo is involved in the last two. So 
Uh, within the Australian government, Geoscience Australia is responsible for position, navigation and timing. Uh, and we're responsible for land and coastal imaging. So earth observation of our land and our coasts. So that involves all kinds of capturing of those data, distributing those data to companies or researchers or just to the public, or making tailored products and services like land cover maps to help people understand how their farm is working. Yeah, fantastic. So lots of uh, different different parts to the work to, to geoscience there, to GA. Um, now, interestingly, I, I saw that NASA last month uh, celebrated uh, 50 years since their Landsat satellite was launched. Uh, why was that satellite such a, a game changer in the, the world of satellite research? Yeah, so the Landsat series of satellites, we're now up to Landsat 9, but this series was the first global survey satellite which started in 1972 and it recently had its birthday and of course GA went and got itself a cake <laughs> uh, and yeah so this satellite has been imaging all of the world about every week since 1972 and so it's giving us that we call it observational continuity but it's an unbroken record of hey what did that paddock look like every week since 1972 so you can see that story through time of it was a forest the forest became a farm the farm became a football field the football field then became a farm the farm then went back to being a forest yeah so that's a really interesting story that you can tell from that data there um which is quite amazing and and to have it over that that huge period of time um, just is is so impressive. I, I hadn't really thought. I guess the first satellite came up from um, uh, Sputnik in 1959. You might correct me on that if I'm wrong. Yeah. So yeah, the, I mean the original satellites. It's it's interesting. We were talking before about the different jobs of kind of looking and going out, sending messages, position, navigation and timing and earth observation. Most people focus on the technology to get to those applications, the rockets, the the how do we actually get the spacesuits working, the how, how do we get these technology for those applications. But yes, but Nick's job of kind of going ping and sending a message back to earth, most of the satellites that have followed it have had these key jobs that really just plug in across the Australian and global economy. It's um, it's a really interesting and kind of pervasive sector. Yeah, well, I guess talking about Australia there, what is Australia's role in these Landsat satellites? You said geoscience uh, celebrated with a birthday cake. How, how much of a role do we play in this NASA project? Well, other than the birth cake, birthday cake side of the business, uh, Geoscience Australia has actually had a ground station in Alice Springs receiving that data since 1979. And so that station has helped download all of the imagery out of the satellites. And in the last couple of years, uh, it's also helped command the satellites. And so there are three stations globally which keep these this constellation of satellites alive and tell it what to do and ask it how it's feeling. And one of those sites is operated by Geoscience Australia out of Alice Springs. We've also got a large role in working with the Landsat program to make sure all of the data is as high quality as it can be. So adding kind of scientific ideas about how to improve the accuracy and then making products and kind of making information out of these. So making a, a map of where the forest is or isn't, or where is the coastline, or making uh, observations about how forest has changed over time. Mm. So it's great to hear. So we really do have a bit of a global stewardship role in, in this whole piece to, to keep the, the work happening right across our, our globe, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great partnership. Mm. All right, I've got a hypothetical now uh, as we're drawing to the, the, the close of this very interesting episode. But tomorrow, there's no satellites. They've, they've all gone. What, what's, what's the Earth going to look like? What's, what's going to be happening to us if suddenly all these satellites disappear? It's going to look very different. I mean, first challenge you're going to have is you're not going to know what to wear because you're not going to have the weather forecast. So 
you're probably going to be dressed pretty poorly, but that's okay. You're a little cold. You jump into your car and go to work. Unfortunately, you're probably not going to get to work because GPS isn't going to be working. And so you're probably going to end up at some cafe somewhere saying, hey, uh, where's my workplace? And you're going to pull into the cafe and you're going to go, I'd really like a coffee. And you're going to try and pay. And unfortunately, a lot of the payment systems are actually connected to timing signals that come from space. So, yeah, you're kind of challenging in a world without space. You could essentially be sitting there kind of cold, lost, and a little bit hungry. That doesn't sound like, yeah, the ideal situation um, there. Uh, so, th- yeah, I think it just highlights how, how much of a key role satellites do play in our everyday here. Is there anything that we, we can do or that geoscience is already doing to, to stop, to make sure that this, this future doesn't happen? Yeah, we can do a heap, and we are doing a heap. So by working with all of these uh, data sources, which kind of are part of what we call the global observing system, it's part of participating in that global observing system. We basically secure that system. So what that means is working with satellite missions around the world like Landsat through operating ground stations, having scientists who go and work with these data and and provide information about how to correct satellites by providing calibration data from Australia, Um, or even in the future, something we're thinking about, believe it or not, um, there are satellites up there right now which don't work together too well. So in in a technical sense, the American definition of what they measure as red and what the Europeans measure as red is different. And so one of the things we're thinking about in Australia at the moment is whether or not we could think of a satellite mission which could essentially help translate between everyone's different definitions of red. All of these satellites measure subtly different things, which means they can't work together very well. So one of the ideas we're wondering is can we actually help all of the satellites that are already up there and already being used across Australia work better together? Well, that sounds like a fantastic mission ahead for you there, uh, bringing it all together and uh, bringing the globe together in some ways to, to save the world. Fantastic. Thanks for that, David. Thank you. Thanks very much. That was Dr. David Hudson there, Director of Satellite Programs at Geoscience Australia. And thanks again to Geoscience Australia for supplying some fantastic scientists today as uh, we did explore how geoscience is saving the world for this uh, special episode during National Science Week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My name is Broderick Matthews and this has been Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.